You are listening to NTC Messina's podcast, where our desire as the family of God is to simply know God, love one another, and make disciples. Well, welcome again. Hope you're enjoying our AC. I am. I think it's beyond 80 already out there. So we've had just a really incredible last few weeks of church, but really last weekend, if you were here, we celebrated our 40th Sunday service anniversary, um, 1981, first morning of uh, Sunday services, and we were celebrating 40 years, and really just all that that symbolizes remembering and celebrating what has happened, but believing that God still has an incredible future for us. And his work isn't done. You know that, right? And we should not have the mindset as the church or as the people of God that kind of puts us in this place where we're just waiting for him to return. That sometimes happens in the Christian world where, you know, we come to know Jesus or we come to know God and and maybe we look at the world and it looks dark in some ways, it looks really broken in some ways, and we can easily get this kind of hunkered down mentality where we say, oh, I'm just going to wait this thing out. We're not supposed to be waiting this thing out. We're supposed to be a part of seeing the transformation of this world into his kingdom. That's what the Bible teaches us. That's what the end, even in Revelation, teaches us. A God who's going to come back, not to get rid of this thing that's broken, but actually to restore it to what it was supposed to be. And we get to be a part of that. So we're excited for the next 40 years. Um, I will be 77 years old then, and uh, hopefully sitting maybe in one of the rows, just happy to be alive. So for anybody that's that age, I'm sorry that that makes it sound really old. Sounds a long ways away for me still. Um, but anyway, so today we're starting a new series. We, we had a series called Transformed, Living Transformed, that led up until our 40th anniversary, and we had Pastor Tom Wells here last week. And now we're starting a new series, and the series is just this, church. Because <laughs> for me, you know, as we kind of been thinking about this year and what we're doing, and of course we're celebrating This church, New Testament church of Messina, been around 40 years, to me it really begs the question and should always beg the question, why are we here and what are we doing? Which should bring us back to what is the purpose of church, what is the church, and why do we exist? And so we're going to do a series going through the summer just called Church. And so today I want to start really with the first passage in Scripture that Jesus uses this word church, and we're going to talk about that, and what does it mean for us? Why are we here? What are we doing? We're going to kind of tackle a whole bunch of topics about church over the next number of weeks. So if you can open your Bibles this morning, we're going to start in Matthew 16, verse 13. And what's taking place here is we're a ways into Jesus ministering. He started his ministry life. We're seeing him perform miracles. He has his disciples and he's, he's walking about the country and he's really, he's declaring the kingdom of God is near. That's, that's what Jesus came to do. And in verse 13, they come to this place and we're going to read it and I'll tell you a little bit about it in a second, but let's start there. Verse 13, chapter 16. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah, and some say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So this is a pretty big moment. Up until now, we haven't seen Jesus bluntly say this to anyone except for a woman at a well, John 4. But up until this moment, he has not directly told the disciples who he is. They're they're probably wondering, they're thinking about it, and he's asking, what what does the world say that I am? Because he's famous. You know, he's not just some random person. 
in that day, he is now ultra famous, as famous as it gets. He's walking about, thousands have gathered everywhere he goes, incredible miracles have followed him, a few fish turn into feeding 5,000 people, everybody that comes near him, we heard one story today, a woman just presses through the crowd and touches his garment and she's healed. Incredible things are following this man and so he's asking now, what does the world think or who does the world think that I am? And it's a really interesting question and it's actually in a very interesting place. So I didn't know this, but the first time I went to Israel, um, my friend Leon took me up to Caesarea Philippi, where this took place. And I went there, and he was explaining to me, because I really don't know everything there is to know about historical Israel and all the backstories to the New Testament. So he takes me to this place called Caesarea Philippi, and there's some ruins there. And so He's telling me, and what I learned is that that location, there's this big gaping hole, basically, in this kind of cave in the side of this massive cliff. And there's some ruins there, and the ruins are actually a temple to a pagan god. And it was actually called the Gates of Hell. And what they did there was extremely disturbing practices, mostly child sacrifice. And so Jesus actually goes to this place known in that day as the gates of hell. And he's about to speak about it. He goes to this location that everybody literally has described as this place that is the entrance to hell, the entrance to, you know, this this terrible thing. And this is where they practice these horrible rituals. And he asks this question, who do they say that I am? And really, I think he is. He's challenging because he wants his disciples to realize in this moment who he is. And so Peter comes up with the right answer. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Verse 17, Jesus replies, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. So he's saying, listen, you only know this because my father has told you. Now I say to you, That you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And and the New Living says this, and all the powers of hell, but actually the, the ESV says, and the gates of hell will not prevail. So he's literally sitting in a location that I understood as the gate to hell. He's asking his disciples who he is. They realize in a moment, you know, God reveals this to to Peter. Peter says, you're the Messiah. And he says, now this is what's very interesting. What does he say the gates of hell will not prevail against? Did he say him? He said the church. He takes them to a place that's really almost the opposite of of life, the opposite of Christ, the opposite of God. And he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against you, my people, my church. This is a huge deal. Now we, we learn, and we're going to read some scriptures, we learn Jesus is the chief cornerstone of the church. So really, we don't conquer anything. We don't have hell not prevail against us in any way except for the fact that Jesus is here. But he's literally putting this incredible weight and even authority on something he now mentions called the church. And it's the first time it's mentioned. And so I want to talk today, why would Jesus say this? Why would he use this term church in this moment? It's the first time we see it. And so I want to go back and just do a little bit of teaching here. What does the word church really mean? So if you have your notes, I, I threw a few things on there just so you can understand a little bit of the etymology or the, the background of the word church. So this is what's funny. The ch- word church comes from an old English word, and basically it sounded like church. I'm not going to try to say that. It's spelled C-Y-R-I-C-E. And the Greek word to that is kurikon which actually means the Lord's house. So today, we sang a song, there's joy in the house of the Lord. Right? And you hear that, like, 
Isn't it great to be in the house of the Lord today? And we use this terminology, which is really the, the root meaning for the word church is in, in this Greek word is kyrikon. But what's interesting, even though the translation of English puts church in those spots, it was not the word that Jesus said. And there's a whole long story to that. Basically, around a thousand years um, after Christ died, they started using this new word, kyrikon, instead of the word that Jesus said, ekklesia. So the Greek word in that, in that spot is actually ekklesia. It's not kyrikon or actually the equation of it, church. But the reason they started using the word church is because simply it's what people understood that they were trying to say. They, were, they already understood a thousand years ago, a years ago that church was a gathering of people. So now I want to go to the why, why they would do that. And then what this word ecclesia, because the word that Jesus says when he says, and I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When he says the word church, he uses the word ecclesia. And what does that word actually mean? So it's in your notes there, but I'll tell you. Ecclesia is kind of a combination of two words. One means a gathering of people, and one means called out. And so really, the best way to describe the word Jesus was using was called out people. Called out ones. That's what church or ecclesia actually means. Church means house of the Lord, but ecclesia actually means called out ones. And this is what's crazy. It was not a religious term in the day. In fact, it was a political term. The only time this word was used historically in, the, in the, that world was when citizens of the Roman and Athenian governments were called out to vote. So he uses a word that's not even familiar with their religious speech. The word for gathering in those days was synagogue, right? We've heard of that one. They went to synagogue. They had synagogue. That was a gathering of Jewish people. They knew that was the word that they used even then. So Jesus brings a whole different word in, which I'm, I'm guessing would have been a little bit confusing in the moment. Why is he using that political term? Why is he using that term that means really an assembly of people called out, and mostly it was for a civil moment. It was for a voting moment. It was for an announcement from the government to its citizens. And so the word actually, the picture of it is that they would go down the streets on a horse in the Roman government, and they would call people out of their homes for an announcement to, be, to hear something that the government had then decided, and, and often that would be a vote or something would take place. Now, in those days, not everyone was a citizen. Especially in Israel, most of them were not. There were Roman citizens because Rome had come in to Israel, thrown over the government, you know, and was ruling. So there were Roman citizens, but then there were just the occupied state of Israel, and all of the Jews... And the Hebrews were not citizens of Rome. And so to be using this term for them is a little bit odd. For them to say, well, wait a second, God. We're not citizens of anywhere. Jesus, why are you saying this word, ecclesia, that would call the citizens of a government out? Why are you using this? And I really think it begs the question, why? Why would Jesus use this word, ecclesia, called out ones. And I really think he's trying to set something up in their thinking that changes how they viewed what he was going to do. How, how it viewed what they were in the midst of the world in which they lived. And we're going to go to some other scriptures here. Actually, I want to kind of pull you to another spot. We'll get to the idea of, of um, called out and all that stuff. But 2 Timothy 1, 6 through 14 Let's, let's read that. This is actually one of my life verses. I think I could find it faster. 
There we go. 2 Timothy 1.6. So this is Paul. He's writing to Timothy, and he says this. This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us the spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm a prisoner for him. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. And this is the part I want us to focus on right now. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. Now, in, on your notes, I wrote it out of the ESV. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This word called and calling is the same root word for ecclesia. It's the same. Ecclesia is just saying it in a sense in a different, in a different pronunciation. But it's, it's ek and it's kaleo, which are those two words put together. And now Paul's writing and he's using the same language that Jesus used when he used this word church to tell, to tell Timothy, listen, you're called. You have a calling. And in fact, this calling was given to you in Christ Jesus before time began. And this is a great part of what he says. It's not according to your works. So what's happened in the church now is we've created these incredible buildings that we call churches. People come to them. Now, if you come to our church, you've heard us say this thousands of times for the last 25 years. Pastor Don, we, we joked about him quoting stuff last weekend. We're not coming together for church. We're the church coming together. So we've, we've known for a long time, it's not about this building. It's about the people. But even in that good mindset Often, as a church or as the people, we come and this is our format. You sit there. I stand here. You listen. I talk. I have ideas. You do them for me. And church becomes this thing where a few people lead or a few people are called A few people are chosen to do this incredible ministry that God has given them, but the rest of us, we're just kind of here, you know, we're saved and we're happy about that, but really it's Greg's job, it's Justin's job, it's the staff's job, it's that pastor's job or or that other person's job, and we create this whole grouping where some are called and some are not. But what I love in this moment realizing that when Jesus uses the very first word that describes his people, he calls you all called out ones. Especially to a group of people. He's speaking to Jews. They were not called out ones. They were, they were not citizens of Rome. They were literally under the tyranny of Rome. So it was the opposite of the truth that they were living. And he says the same to you today. You're called. And you might think to yourself, well, Jesus, I'm not called. Look at, look, at, look at my life. Look at the way I live. Look at the bad choices I make. Or look at the things that don't work out in my life. When I pray, nothing happens. When I, when I tell someone some hope about Jesus, they don't listen to me. I'm not called. But yet Jesus' description of his church, literally built into the word of it, is called out once. If you are a part of church, you are called. And Paul writes this to Timothy, and he's really reminding Timothy. Now, Timothy's letters I appreciate because he's basically getting two letters from a father figure in the faith in his life. And really, he's just trying to encourage Timothy because I'm guessing that if Timothy's a little bit like any of us, you just want to quit sometimes. And he's saying, hey, don't forget And that's why I started with that scripture. He says, this is why I remind you, fan into flames the spiritual gift that God gave you. He's reminding Timothy, don't you think you are not called? In fact, God has called you and saved you to a holy calling before the beginning of time, and it's not according to your works. And when when it says not according to your works, that can come in two ways, good and bad works. You don't earn your calling based on your good works, and you can't get away from that calling based on your bad ones. Not according to our works. God has a calling for his people, for every one of us. 
That's the, that's the church. Right from the first time the word was used in scripture from Jesus' lips, he was saying, you are called out. And it was for a purpose. They knew that even in the using of that word ecclesia, it was for a purpose. It was as if someone was coming down the road and saying, come out and hear what's about to take place because there's a purpose to it. It wasn't just called for no reason. It wasn't just called to sit on the sidelines. It was called to hear what the news was going to be and then to act upon it. This is the word Jesus chooses to literally instill into his people in that moment. And it's the word that he actually says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I think there's a a nuance to, to the truth of the gates of hell not prevailing against us. It means we actually have to be the church Jesus intended for the gates of hell to not prevail. We think that if we just belong to a church or if we are a member of a church or if we just, you know, know Jesus that the gates of hell will not prevail. But the truth is when the church is actually being the church it's designed to be, that's when the gates of hell don't win. And it's the same, not just for us as a corporate church, but as every individual in this room. Whenever you find that in a sense hell seems to be winning in your life or winning against you in some way. For me, it always begs the question. It always makes me want to ask Jesus, okay, what am I supposed to be doing then? Because if our Christian life is just, you know, receive the grace Jesus paid for on the cross, come and check our time card at church, but yet we don't always see the victory that we, God has promised for us, I really believe it's because we're not acting as the church we're supposed to act as. We're not acting as the called out one that God has us called to be. John 15, I love, I love John 14 and 15. This, this conversation goes on where Jesus is saying these two sides to something and he's trying to get us to understand it's not separate. And he, he's really talking about relationship. And in fact, in 14, he invites us into this unbelievable relationship with, with him, with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And he says, with the Holy Spirit, you will be with me and I and you and you. And, and he has this whole thing and he says, and if you, but then he goes this, if you obey my commandments, my Father and I will come and make our home in your hearts. And he goes back and forth between this thought of obeying his commandments and having relationship with him. John 15, it turns to producing fruit. And having relationship with him. Following his commands and having relationship with him. I believe that the church, in order to be its actual meaning, to be the church, and for us even to be Christians, the work of God is synonymous with the relationship of God. And sometimes I think we come to Jesus and it's like, we're, we're all about relationship. Because this is what's funny, right? If you just look at church history... It's just swung back and forth multiple times. Because really, Martin Luther pounds 500 years ago, 95 things that the church was doing wrong. And one of the main ones was that people were believing that it was works-based to get salvation. And so the church swings all the way over for the last 500 years. Like, it's just all about relationship and grace. And we love that. But then we forgot there's still some work to do. And in fact, there's still requirements of Christianity on us. There's things that God has that we're called to do, to be like, and to look like for the world. And if we just sit on this, like, pursue a relationship with Jesus, I think at times he's kind of like, yeah, yeah, great to talk to you again. What are you doing? Hey, you remember when I asked you to do that thing? Did you, did you do that yet? Oh yeah, I heard you ask that prayer before. How about what I asked you to do? And we make Christianity this thing that actually becomes, guess what, about us. About my healing, about my wholeness, about my pursuit for all the things God has for me. And we forget that yes, it is about us, but it's also about everyone else and it's about all the things that Jesus has planned. So his church... Right from this moment, I will build my church upon this rock. I will build my 
ecclesia, my called out ones, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against those that are called out. And we go on to understand the church a little bit more. Well, let's jump down in 2 Timothy. I want to read this in verse 14. I didn't get to yet. Actually, we'll, we'll, we'll keep going from verse 9. We'll start in 10. So it says, And this was his plan from before the beginning of time, to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. And now he has made all of this plain to us by appearing of Christ Jesus our Savior. He broke the power of death. Right? We just heard that part Caesarea Philippi, he raised from the dead, illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. And God chose me, he's talking about himself now as Paul, me to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of this good news. That is why I'm suffering here in prison. But I am not ashamed of it. For I know the one in whom I trust. Listen to this part. And I am sure that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until the day of his return. Hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching you learned from me, a pattern shaped by the faith and love that you have in Christ Jesus. Through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, carefully guard the precious truth that has been entrusted to you. You see, Jesus, I think specifically from this moment in Matthew 16, he begins to set up his disciples to realize he's leaving. And now he's going to get their, hopefully their mindset to change to realize that the gates of hell won't prevail against them even when he's not next to them in person. In fact, if you read just after that part in Matthew 16, Actually, we'll jump there real quick. I want to read just a a description of what takes place immediately after that. Matthew 16, after he says this, and then verse 20, he says, From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. From this day on, it says, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly. There was a moment here in this, this place of Caesarea Philippi where he was, it was really, to me, I think, is the moment where he began to build his church, not just make disciples. They are synonymous to a degree, but now he's trying to get his disciples, the ones in whom he's trained, that he's shown his way of living, that he's shown his way of thinking, that he's now shown them who the Father is, and and he's going to introduce them later to the Holy Spirit. He's now trying to get them to realize, the job is about to be yours. And I want to tell you right from the get-go, the gates of hell won't win if you take the job seriously. And so Matthew 16, Jesus begins to set up his disciples. And Paul later, a long time later from that moment, writes to Timothy and he says, By the Holy Spirit who dwells with us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. The thing that Jesus has entrusted to you. And it's really, he's speaking in a bigger thought to all of us. What has God entrusted to us, his people? I think that begs the question, why are we here? If it's just because, you know, we like good music and, you know, for those of us with lots of kids, we get a nice break. <laughs> we're, missing, we're missing so much of the point. Even if, we, even if we know that we're here to celebrate what Jesus has done and to have community with one another, we're still missing a portion of the point. You see, the word prevail... Sounds defensive, but it's actually not. Prevail sounds like you're standing here and you're going to hold off an attack. Prevail actually is the opposite. It's an offensive word. The church is supposed to be on the offense, not on the defense. We're not supposed to hunker down and wait things out and, you know, the gates of hell won't prevail. No, When he says the gates of hell won't prevail, it was a scary thing for the gates of hell to hear. 
Because it meant that there's now an offense from the kingdom of God that is going to take back from darkness what it has stolen. And that was the job of the church, to understand that now I'm going to leave. Jesus says in John 16, it's better, or John 15, it's better for you that I go. And now he's giving this job to the church, to his people, to his called out ones, to everyone that comes to know his grace and to call him Lord, that their job is to actually do what he did. Not just to assemble. You see, I wanted to give you some of the etymology here because if we just go with the word church, even though it's what we understand, as the Lord's house, it, it makes us think that the whole point is just to gather. It's to gather and to go. It's to gather and to accomplish his work. It's to gather for a purpose. And that's what they understood with this word ecclesia. It's not just about the Lord's house. It's not just about the idea that this, you know, in a sense, even we can look at it in, in ourselves. We're the temple of the Lord. I'm the Lord's house. Yes, but you're also called. You're called out of something for a purpose. And, and what's even more specific about that word, it says called out. It's not just called like, hey, let me call you up and, and let you know what you're supposed to do. It actually means you're supposed to leave something. And because in the, in, the, in the declaration, the idea was you're going down the street and someone on a horse is declaring to the citizens who are in their homes, leave your home and come and see what you're supposed to hear and then do. God calls us out sometimes Usually, hopefully, of the places we shouldn't be living. And the lifestyle that's not of what Christ designs for us, of the, the, the life patterns that keep us depressed and down and, and in a place where we're not effective in the world and where we, we don't know the grace of Jesus and when we don't know the love of the Father, he keeps us down there. And Jesus, first, his first calling out is, hey, how about you come up out of that muck? How about you come over this way and see a new life I have for you? But that's not the only calling out in our lives. The next calling out is, okay, now how about you come and work with me? How about you come and hear the purpose of why we exist? How about you come and hear why we gather as a people? You know, if it's just about relationship with God, you don't need church. It's absolutely true. And I've had this discussion at multiple times with people who, who you, know, oh, I, you know, I don't really go to church anymore, the, the whole structured religion thing, it's just not for me. And, and the truth is I understand where they're coming from. There's been hurts and disillusionment and, and even hypocrisy and issues. And so people end up writing off the system or the structure that they understand as church. And they say, well, because really it's, it's just about relationship with Jesus, and I have this great relationship with Jesus. And, and I would say, yeah, if it is just about relationship with Jesus, sure, you can stay home and do that. But what if it's not just about relationship? What if it's about the fact that we're called out together to accomplish something together? Well, then being alone makes that really hard. I love this quote. I don't even know who I heard it from, but we can do infinitely more together than we can apart. And I love that infinitely more. It's true. We can do infinitely more together. The, the, the possibilities when people join in unity to accomplish a task is, is mind-boggling. Just look around the world, honestly. Just look at the accomplishments of man even just on their own accord, when we put our minds to something. Towers that are thousands of feet tall. I can't even conceive that. I went to, in Dubai, I went to the Burj Khalifa, the tallest building in the world. It's a thousand feet taller than the Freedom Tower in New York City. I don't even know how to conceive that. We went to the 148th floor in 21 seconds. It was a very fast elevator. And I think to myself, these are people who might not even know Jesus, and this is what we're capable of when we work together. Imagine a called-out people 
who know God, who, who, who literally can unlock the impossibilities of, our, of us and who he's created humanity to be if we would just get together and do his work. But yet, the greatest thing the enemy's done is create 40,000 denominations. You know, in the world... Don played this video actually um, at one of our at the 40th anniversary night on Saturday. He played this video, and and the truth is, there's just under three billion professing Christians. Out of the seven billion in the world, three billion people say, "Yeah, I follow Jesus." Now, I'm not going to judge the legitimacy of that, but what if <laughs> nearly half the world said, "Hey, we're going to work together." Not only does the world then see the goodness of God, world hunger, not a problem. Water, disease, not a problem. Diseases plaguing bodies. I'm telling you, I think we could solve the world's issues. Because Jesus, in his design for his church, for his called out ones, was that in unity we would accomplish far more works than he ever could have as a single man, even as divine as he was, he understood, if I can get my people together, greater works they'll do than I. This was the purpose behind this moment. And I will build my church. Ephesians 2.19, let's jump there. Ephesians 2. We're going to read 19 through 22. Again, this is Paul writing to a church in Ephesus. And honestly, this letter is kind of understood as, as the book of the church. And he says this, So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. So I want, to, I want to point out what's happening here. He's writing this letter specifically because there was always an ongoing division between those who were historically Jews, and those who were Gentiles, even though they were both coming in as Christians and followers of Christ now, the Jews often were still thinking they were better. We're, we're, God's, we're God's real chosen people. And so Paul, in many of his letters, he's often writing to them to say, listen, this divide you keep bringing up, it doesn't even exist in the kingdom. And so he's speaking to the Gentiles to encourage and remind them of their place in the kingdom of God. And this is what he says. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all God's holy people. Now this is, this is not, Paul's writing this language. Paul is a genius. He understood Christ's Life and he studied. He's he's a religion. And before that, he was probably the one of the top religious scholars. Before Jesus knocked him on his butt, and so he's using this language, I believe, very purposely because he knows that Jesus used this word ecclesia, which was speaking to citizens. Yet Paul's writing and he's saying, "You are now citizens. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people." So listen. There's no longer the Jews as God's holy people and the Gentiles. There's now just citizens of this kingdom. You are, and, and then I love this, you are members of God's family. That's why we use this language all the time. You're not just citizens of a country. You're actually members of a family. And he says this in 20, together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophet and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We know this. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. We see this language that Paul uses, and he's using it very purposely. He's using this citizen language because he wants them to understand that they literally have a value in this new kingdom called the kingdom of God. In this place of gathering to be called out to do something, this place they're going to use the term called church, he wants them to understand you have value in this place. You're not a less than Christian because you're a Gentile. 
The same is true for us today. You're not a less than Christian because you didn't go to church when you were young or because you didn't receive first communion or confirmation. You're not a less than Christian because of any reason. If you've come into his kingdom, if you've accepted Jesus and want to be a part of his family, immediately you're a citizen. And so Paul is writing and he's using this language very purposely. And then he gets into this building picture, which I love. It says, we are his house built together. Of which Jesus is the cornerstone. And we know that. But this is a very interesting thought. We'll go to 1 Peter next, 2, 4 through 5. Just a few books later. And Peter's writing, and he says this, You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. In that day, this is extremely radical language. Because to the Jews... It was still true that you could only meet God in one location. The Temple Mount, where the Ark of the Covenant was. Now, of course, a few years behind that, the curtain had ripped open, but I'm guessing they sewed it back together. In fact, I know they did. They tried to pretend like that never took place. And so in the Jews' mind, to say that God could be met anywhere was silliness to them. And now... They're saying that you are God's temple, which they would have all understood. That means God resides within us. His spirit resides within us. And he's saying that we are living stones. Listen, Jesus is the cornerstone of the house of God, the church, the called out people. But guess who makes up the rest of the house? You do. You ever lived in a house with one stone in the corner? It's not overly comfortable, I don't think. We make up the rest. We literally, humans, broken. <laughs> Not even very good at listening to Jesus. He decides, you know what? You're good material. I'm going to build my walls and my doors and my windows and my roof and the places in which people are going to come and find solace and health and hope in their life. They're going to come inside this, this thing I built with you, and you're good enough material for that. Now, I think some of us need a little more planing than others. Maybe a few nails knocked out and reshaped. But God wants to use us. And in fact, he refuses to use anything else to build his church. The material he uses is his people. The ones he's called out. And this is what I love about this idea of called out ones. It still matters who responds. Roman government didn't go to the house doors, open it, and say, come on out, you have to listen. They just went down the street announcing, any citizen, come on out. Still took a response to come out. So based on our response, Jesus thinks we're good enough material. If you've responded at all to him, you're good material for the house of God. No matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing, no matter who you are or the mistakes you've made, no matter how good you think you are, which is sometimes harder to work with, God wants to use us to build his church. And when that church understands what they're called to and what they're called to look like and what they're called to represent, the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And people, people will then come flooding to see what's going on. You see, thousands of followers showed up to hear Jesus' teaching for a reason. In fact, if you listen to his teachings, they're not always that great. Weird parables, weird symbolism. Unless you drink my blood and eat my body, you can't be my disciple. Um, yeah, I got something else to do. I can't believe you made me come and listen to this guy. I mean, think about the realities 
of this. You know, we all think this stuff's spiritual, but you got all these, you know, Jews like, hey, buddy, Ben, you should come hear Jesus. I hear he's a good speaker. And then he says things like that, and you're like, oh, never mind. I mean, maybe if we stay longer, there'll be a couple cool miracles. Jesus wants to use his people to represent to the world what God wants to show. 1 Peter 2.9, a few verses later from that. I love this. He, he goes on and, and kind of talks about the cornerstone and, and it being rejected and God placing us. And then in verse 9 says, but you are not like that. He's talking about people that have stumbled and stones that basically are useless. And he goes, but you are not like that, for you are a chosen people, you are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God. Why are we here? To show others the goodness of God. And I'm going to end right on this verse. It says this, For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. This is the design of the church from Jesus' lips. I would dare say a few thousand years or a couple thousand years has maybe, maybe we've forgotten some of that. Maybe we've gone a little bit off path. Maybe we've made church about things that it really isn't about. Maybe we've just even become complacent. But the church that Jesus is coming back for, which we're going to get to in another sermon, the church he's coming back for, and it says that it's spotless and blameless, the point there is not about a perfect life, but actually people who didn't refuse to do what they were supposed to. That's actually the whole picture in that. He's coming back for a church who said yes, who was available, who was willing to do what they were called out of to do. And when we realize that we've been called out of darkness into some wonderful light that Jesus has for us, we realize that as a result of that, we're supposed to show the goodness of God to the world around us. Not just show up on Sunday morning. Why don't we stand this morning? We, the church, have been called out and entrusted with the work of showing others the goodness of God. And if you hear anything this morning, I want you to hear this. You're good enough. You're good enough. You're good enough. Whatever lies you think of or things that are going on in your head to disqualify yourself from being used by God, you're good enough. Jesus is a great builder. He can take our broken stones, our chipped edges, our cracked whatever, and he can put us in a place and make it look beautiful. He does it to me all the time. You're good enough. Maybe you're in this room and you don't even know if you know God. All it takes is simply saying, I want to know Jesus. Jesus, I want to be a part of this, this kingdom. I want to be a part of this family that was, we just read in Ephesians. I don't want to just be a citizen. or I don't want to just be a church attender. I actually want to be someone who's a part of this family of people who are called out of something for a purpose in something. And all it takes is simply a prayer. A declaration with your own lips to say, Jesus, I want that. He hears you. There's no special words in how to say it. Any way you want to do it. And it can start just like that. So I'm going to pray this morning, and we're going to end. I'm just going to pray, and wherever you're at in this room, you know, maybe we often raise our hands, right? And it's just kind of a sign of surrender. If you want to do that, I would encourage you, like, Jesus, I want to be your church. And so if, if you want to raise your hands, I'd encourage you to do that. And we're going to pray, and I'm going to believe that God is not going to let just our excellent, successful 40 years 
become the excuse for not an incredible 40 more. Because Jesus has great work for us to do. He has goodness for us to show the world. So Father, we just surrender to you today, God. We surrender our lives to you. We surrender our wills to you, God. For anybody in this room or watching online today that just says, I don't even know if I'm a part of this family. I don't really know if I'm a part of the kingdom. God, I pray right now that as they whisper words, that they would feel the presence of your spirit come in their lives, God. God, that they would realize no sin, no action, no thing that they've done or not done can keep them separated from you if, if they receive your grace. So God, let us all receive your grace this morning in a fresh way. And God, for those of us who are following you and, and even beginning to follow you, God, I pray right now that we would not be a complacent church, not just people who attend and gather a house of the Lord, but ones who know that we are actually called out to accomplish the incredible purposes you have for us. God, that for 40 years from now that we could look back and people would say, man, I can't believe the impact because some people said yes, they were available. They didn't get disqualified because of their issues and their difficulties and the things that maybe made them think they weren't good enough, but they just said, yes, Jesus, use me. I want to be that church. I want to show the love to this world that you have. I want to show your goodness to this world. So Jesus, we surrender in a new way to you today as your church, as your called out ones, as people who just say, Father, we want to be available. And God, we thank you for what you're doing. We thank you for what you're doing in every heart. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Be blessed. Have a wonderful day together. Enjoy the weather. And we will see you again soon. Thank you for listening to NTC Messina's podcast. We hope you join us next week and have a blessed day.